Chapter Twenty Six of the Valley of Silent Men. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Valley of Silent Men by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Twenty Six. A little later, clasping hands in the lamp glow, Kent and Sandy McTrigger stood alone in the big room. In their hand clasp was the warm thrill of strong men met in an immutable brotherhood. Each had faced death for the other. Yet this thought, subconsciously and forever a part of them, expressed itself only in the grip of their fingers and in the understanding that lay deep in their eyes. In Kent's face the great question was of Marette. McTrigger saw the fear of it, and slowly he smiled, a glad, and yet an anxious smile, as he looked toward the door through which Marette and the older woman had gone. "'Thank God you have come in time,' he said, still holding Kent's hand. "'She thought you were dead. And I know, Kent, that it was killing her. We had to watch her at night. Sometimes she would wander out into the valley. She said she was looking for you. It was that way tonight.' Kent gulped hard. "'I understand now,' he said. "'It was the living soul of her that was pulling me here. I—' He took his pack with its precious contents from his shoulders, listening to McTrigger. They sat down. What McTrigger was saying seemed of trifling consequence beside the fact that Marette was somewhere beyond the other door, alive, and that he would see her again very soon. He did not see why McTrigger should tell him that the older woman was his wife. Even the fact that a splendid chance had thrown Marette upon a log wedged between two rocks in the chute, and that this log, breaking away, had carried her to the opposite side of the river, miles below, was trivial with the thought that only a door separated them now. But he listened. He heard McTrigger tell how Marette had searched for him those days when he was lost in fever at André Boileau's cabin, how she had given him up for dead, and how in those same days LaSalle's brigade had floated down, and she had come north with it. Later he would marvel over these things, but now he listened, and his eyes turned toward the door. It was then that McTrigger drove something home. It was like a shot piercing Kent's brain. McTrigger was speaking quietly of O'Connor. He said, But you probably came by way of Fort Simpson, Kent, and O'Connor has told you all this. It was he who brought Marette back home through the sulfur country. O'Connor! Kent sprang to his feet. It took McTrigger but a moment to read the truth in his face. Good! "'God, do you mean to tell me you don't know, Kent?' he whispered tensely, rising in front of the other. "'Haven't you seen O'Connor? Haven't you come in touch with the police anywhere within the last year? Don't you know?' "'I know nothing,' breathed Kent. For a space, McTrigger stared at him in amazement. "'I have been in hiding,' said Kent. All this time I have been keeping away from the police. McTrigger drew a deep breath. 
Again his hands gripped Kent's, and his voice was incredulous, filled with a great wonder. "'And you have come to her, to her old home, believing that Marette killed Kedsty.' "'It is hard to believe. And yet—' Into his face came suddenly a look of grief, almost of pain, and Kent, following his eyes, saw that he was looking at a big stone fireplace in the end of the room. "'It was O'Connor who worked the thing out last winter,' he said, speaking with an effort. "'I must tell you before you see her again. You must understand everything. It will not do to have her tell you. See—' Kent followed him to the fireplace. From the shelf over the stonework, McTrigger took a picture and gave it to him. It was a snapshot, the picture of a bareheaded man standing in the open with the sun shining on him. A low cry broke from Kent's lips. It was the great gray ghost of a man he had seen in the lightning flare that night from the window of his hiding place in Kedsty's bungalow. "'My brother!' said McTrigger chokingly. I loved him. For forty years we were comrades. And Marette belonged to us, half and half. It was he who killed John Barclay. And then, after a moment in which McTrigger fought to speak steadily, he added, And it was he, my brother, who also killed Inspector Kedsty. For a matter of seconds there was a dead silence between them. McTrigger looked into the fireplace instead of at Kent. Then he said, "'He killed those men, but he didn't murder them, Kent. It couldn't be called that. It was justice, single-man justice, without going to law. If it wasn't for Marette, I wouldn't tell you about it, not the horrible part of it. I don't like to bring it up in my memory. It happened years ago.' I was not married then, but my brother was ten years older than I and had a wife. I think that Marette loves you as Marie loved Donald. And Donald's love was more than that. It was worship. We came into the new mountain country, the three of us, even before the big strikes at Dawson and Bonanza. It was a wild country, a savage country, and there were few women in it. But Marie came with Donald. She was beautiful, with hair and eyes like Marette's. That was the tragedy of it. I won't tell you the details. They were terrible. It happened while Donald and I were out on a hunt. Three men, white men, remember that, Kent, white men, came out of the north and stopped at the cabin. When we returned, what we found there drove us mad. Marie died in Donald's arms, and leaving her there, alone, we set out after the white-skinned brutes who had destroyed her. Only a blizzard saved them, Kent. Their trail was fresh when the storm came. Had it held off another two hours, I, too, would have killed. From that day, Donald and I became man-hunters. We traced the back trail of the three friends, and discovered who they were. Two years later, Donald found one of the three in the Yukon, 
and before he killed him he made him verify the names of the other two. It was a long search after that, Kent. It has covered thirty years. Donald grew old faster than I, and I knew, after a time, that he was strangely mad. He would be gone for months at a time, always searching for the two men. Ten years passed, and then, one day, in the deep of winter, we came on a cabin home that had been stricken with the plague, the smallpox. It was the home of Pierre Radisson and his wife, Andrea. Both were dead. But there was a little child still living, almost a babe in arms. We took her, Donald and I. The child was Marette. McTrigger had spoken almost in a monotone. He had not raised his eyes from the ash of the fireplace. But now he looked up suddenly at Kent. We worshipped her from the beginning, he said, his voice a bit husky. I hoped that love for her would save Donald. It did, in a way, but it did not cure his madness, his desire for vengeance. We came farther east. We found this marvelous valley and gold in the mountains, untouched by other men. We built here, and I hoped even more that the glory of this new world we had discovered would help Donald to forget. I married, and my wife loved Marette. We had a child, and then another, and both died. We loved Marette more than ever after that. Anne, my wife, was the daughter of a missioner, and capable of educating Marette up to a certain point. You will find this place filled with all kinds of books, and reading, and music. But the time came when we thought we must send Marette to Montreal. It broke her heart. And then, a long time after, McTrigger paused a moment, looking into Kent's eyes. And then, one day, Donald came in from Dawson City, terrible in his madness, and told us that he had found his men. One of them was John Barclay, the rich timberman, and the other was Kedsty, inspector of police at Athabasca Landing. Kent made no effort to speak. His amazement, as McTrigger had gone on, was beyond the expression of words. The night held for him a cumulative shock, the discovery that Marette was not dead, but alive, and now the discovery that he, Jim Kent, was no longer a hunted man, and that it was O'Connor, his old comrade, who had run the truth down. With dry lips, he simply nodded, urging McTrigger to continue. "'I knew what would happen if Donald went after Barclay and Kedsty,' said the older man, "'and it was impossible to hold him back. "'He was mad, clean mad.' There was just one thing for me to do. I left here first with the intention of warning the two brutes who had killed Donald's wife. I knew, with the evidence in our hands, they could do nothing but make a getaway. No matter how rich or powerful they were, our evidence was complete, 
and through many years we had kept track of the movements of our witnesses. I tried to explain to Donald that we could send them to prison, but there was but one thought in his poor sick mind, to kill. I was younger and beat him south. And after that I made my fatal mistake. I thought I was far enough ahead of him to get down to the line of rail and back before he arrived. You see, I figured his love for Marette would take him to Montreal first, and I had made up my mind to tell her everything so that she might understand the necessity of holding him if he went to her. I wrote everything to her and told her to remain in Montreal. How she did that, you know. She set out for the north as soon as she received my letter. McTrigger's shoulders hunched lower. Well, you know what happened, Kent. Donald got ahead of me after all. I came the day after Barclay was killed. I took it as a kind fate that the day preceding the killing I shot a grouse for my dinner, and as the bird was only wounded when I picked it up, I got blood on the sleeves of my coat. I was arrested. Kedsty, everyone, was sure they had the real man. And I kept quiet, except to maintain my innocence. I could say nothing that would turn the law on Donald's trail. After that, things happened quickly. You, my friend, made your false confession to save one who had done you a poor service years ago. Almost simultaneously with that, Marette had come. She came quietly in the night and went straight to Kedsty. She told him everything, showed him the written evidence, telling him this evidence was in the hands of others and would be used if anything happened to her. Her power over him was complete. As the price of her secrecy, she demanded my release and in that black hour your confession gave Kedsty his opportunity. He knew you were lying. He knew it was Donald who had killed Barclay. Yet he was willing to sacrifice you to save himself. And Marette remained in his house, waiting and watching for Donald, while I searched for him on the trails. That is why she secretly lived in Kedsty's house. She knew that Donald would come there sooner or later, if I did not find him and get him away, and she was plotting how to save you. She loved you, Kent, from that first hour she came to you in the hospital, and she tried to exact your freedom also as an added price for her secrecy. But Kedsty had become like a cornered tiger. If he freed you, he saw his whole world crumbling under his feet. He, too, went a little mad, I think. He told Marette that he would not free you, that he would go to the hangman first. Then, Kent, came the night of your freedom, and a little later Donald came to Kedsty's home. It was he whom you saw that night out in the storm. He entered and killed Kedsty. Something dragged Marette down to the room that night. She found Kedsty in his chair, dead. Donald was gone. It was then that you found her there. Kent, she loved you, 
and you will never know how her heart bled when she let you think that she had killed Kedsty. She has told me everything. It was her fear for Donald, her desire to keep all possible suspicion from him until he was safe, that compelled her not to confide even in you. Later, when she knew that Donald must be safe, she was going to tell you. And then you were separated at the chute. McTrigger paused, and Kent saw him choke back a grief that was still like the fresh cut of a knife in his heart. And O'Connor found out all this? McTrigger nodded. Yes. He defied Kedsty's command to go to Fort Simpson and was on his way back to Athabasca Landing when he found my brother. It is strange how all things happened, Kent, but I guess God must have meant it that way. Donald was dying, and in dying, for a space, his old reason returned to him. It was from him, before he died, that O'Connor learned everything. The story is known everywhere now. It is marvelous that you did not hear— There came an interruption, the opening of a door. Anne McTrigger stood looking at them, where a little time before she had disappeared with Marette. There was a glad smile in her face. Her dark eyes were glowing with a new happiness. First they rested on McTrigger's face, and then on Kent's. Marette is much better,' she said in her soft voice. "'She is waiting to see you, Monsieur Kent. Will you come now?' Like one in a dream, Kent went toward her. He picked up his pack, for with its precious contents it had become to him like his own flesh and blood. And as the woman led the way and Kent followed her, McTrigger did not move from the fireplace. In a little while, Anne McTrigger came back into the room. Her beautiful eyes were aglow. She was smiling softly, and putting her arms about the shoulders of the man at the fireplace, she whispered, "'I have looked at the night through the window, Malcolm. I think that the stars are bigger and brighter than they have been in a long time. And the watcher seems like a living god up in the sky. Come, please.' She took his hand, and Malcolm went with her. Over their heads burned a glory of stars. The wind came gently up the valley, cool with the freshness of the mountain tops, sweet with the smell of meadow and flowers. And when the woman pointed through the glow, Malcolm McTrigger looked up at the watcher, and for an instant he fancied that he saw what she had seen, something that was life instead of death a glow of understanding and of triumph in the mighty face of stone above the lace mists of the clouds. For a long time they walked on, and deep in the heart of the woman a voice cried out again and again that the watcher knew, and that it was a living joy she saw up there, for up to that unmoving and voiceless god of the mountains she had cried and laughed and sung and even prayed, and with her Marette had also done these things, until at last the pulse and beat of women's souls had given a spirit to a form of rock. Back in the chateau which Malcolm McTrigger and his brother Donald had built of logs, in a room whose windows faced the watcher himself, 
Morette was unveiling the last of mystery for Jim Kent. And this, too, was her hour of triumph. Her lips were red and warm with the flush brought there by Kent's love. Her face was like the wild roses he had crushed under his feet all that day. For in this hour the world had come to her and had prostrated itself at her feet. The sacred contents of the pack were in her lap as she leaned back in the great blanketed and pillowed chair that had been her invalid's nest for many days. But it was an invalid's nest no longer. The floods of life were pounding through her body again, and in that hour when Malcolm McTrigger and his wife were gone, Kent looked upon the miracle of its change. And now Marette gave to him a little packet, and while Kent opened it, she raised both hands to her head and unbound her hair so that it fell about her in shining and glorious confusion. Kent, unwrapping a last bit of tissue paper, found in his hands a long tress of hair. See, Jeems, it has grown fast since I cut it that night. She leaned a little toward him, parting her hair with slim, white fingers, so that he saw again where the hair had been clipped the night of Kedsty's death. And then she said, You may keep it always if you want to, Jeems, for I cut it from my head when I left you in the room below, and when you almost believed I had killed Kedsty. It was this. She gave him another packet, and her lips tightened a little as Kent unwrapped it, and another tress of hair shimmered in the lamp glow. That was Father Donald's, she whispered. It, it was all he had left of Marie, his wife. And that night, when Kedsty died, I understand, cried Kent, stopping her. He choked Kedsty with it until he was dead. And when I found it around Kedsty's neck, you, you let me think it was yours to save Father Donald. She nodded. Yes, Jeems. If the police had come, they would have thought I was guilty. I planned to let them think so until Father Donald was safe. But all the time I had here in my breast this other tress, which would prove that I was innocent when the time came. And now, Jeems, she smiled at him again and reached out her hands. Oh, I feel so strong, and I want to take you out now and show you my valley, Jeems, our valley, yours and mine, in the starlight. Not tomorrow, Jeems, but tonight, now. A little later the watcher looked down on them, even as it had looked down on another man and another woman who had preceded them. But the stars were bigger and brighter, and the white cap of snow that rested on the watcher's head like a crown caught the faint gleam of a faraway light. And after that, slowly and wonderfully, other snow-crested mountaintops caught that greeting radiance of the moon. But it was the watcher who stood out like a mighty god among them all, and when they came to the elbow in the plain, Marette drew Kent down beside her on a great flat rock and laughed softly as she held his hand tightly in her lap. Always from a little child I have sat and played on this rock, with the watcher looking, like that, she said in a low voice. 
I have grown to love him, Jeems, and I have always believed that he was gazing off there night and day into the east, watching for something that was coming to me. Now I know. It was you, Jeems. And, Jeems, when I was away, down there in the big city, her fingers gripped his thumb in their old way, and Kent waited. It was the watcher that made me want to come home most of all, she went on, a bit of tremble in her voice. Oh, I grew lonely for him, and I could see him in my dreams at night, watching, 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 and sometimes even calling me. Jeems, do you see that hump on his left shoulder, like a great epaulet? Yes, I see, said Kent. Beyond that, on a straight line from here, hundreds of miles away, are Dawson City, the Yukon, the big gold country, men, women, civilization. Father Malcolm and Father Donald have never found but one trail to this side of the mountains, and I have been over it three times, to Dawson. But the watcher's back is on those things. Sometimes I imagine it was he who built those great ramparts through which few men come. He wants this valley alone, and so do I, alone with you and with my people. Kent drew her close in his arms. When you are stronger, he whispered, we will go over that hidden trail together, past the watcher, toward Dawson. For it must be that over there we will find a missioner. He paused. Please go on, Jeems. And you will be my wife. Yes, yes, Jeems, forever and ever. But, Jeems, her arms crept up about his neck. Very soon it will be the first of August. Yes. And in that month there come through the mountains each year a man and a woman to visit us, Mother Anne's father and mother. And Mother Anne's father, yes, is a missioner, Jeems. And Kent, looking up in this hour of his triumph and joy, believed that in the watcher's face he caught for an instant the passing radiance of a smile. The End End of Chapter 26 Recording by Roger Moline The Valley of Silent Men by James Oliver Curwood